Thank you, Joe. It's been a long time. You make me feel like an expert. <laughs> I feel like the least of the tribe of Manassas when it comes to fill-in preaching. Um, I've had people after me saying, why don't you fill in, why don't you fill in? You know when you go through a triple heart bypass and a heart attack, maybe a mini-stroke, you don't rush up to get into the pulpit because you have a hard time with your emotions. And I'll tell you, I've got my nitroglycerin tablets right here. So, you know, the, this morning I was feeling that angina and I just had to slow down. So I'm not the same, but it's not up to me, is it? Some plant, others water, God causes the growth. And, and you learn that the most humbling, Lord can humble you. I remember when I was in uh, younger years, I was telling Jimmy in the ministry, you think when you come out of Bible college, it's all about you. And, you know, I've got to do this. And you practice and you find these illustrations and you uh, dig in the scriptures. And I had this sermon at Farmville Church of Christ. And I stood on my head. I mean, I screamed and hollered and prayed and jumped up and down. And into the sermon, one person came forward. It's a young mother. And I was just praising God. And uh, she rededicated her life uh, to Christ. Her name is Phyllis. Everybody has those evangelists in the church, the Lynettes that are the five-foot powerhouse, influence of Christ. And this woman turns around, and she preached the sermon. And the entire church come, gets up and comes forward, except one fella in the back. He was just shocked, but they all gave their life to Christ. But I had nothing to do with it. And when you stop to think about it, neither did she one plants, the other waters, it's God who causes the growth. And I'm tickled that you've invited me up, that I have an opportunity to exercise the faith. If you have your Bibles turned to 138, I'm sorry, Psalms 138, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading out of the NIV, but that just touched my life. What a lesson that was. Another person that hit on a spiritual note, was a few weeks ago, was um, Collins, the 3E minister. And uh, he was in real estate, and I believe it was in 07. Uh, His issues happened in 08. I was also in real estate in 07. And there were some 10 million homes that went into foreclosure uh, during that time. I didn't lose, we didn't lose the house, but we almost did. And to say that numbers were down and prospects were slim was an understatement. And I tell you, you just don't know, you just don't know what to do. Um, worse yet, I was beginning to lose self-confidence, and that's the worst enemy of any salesman is when you stop believing in yourself. But nothing was working. Went to all the seminars, bought all those self-help books with money I didn't have, you just come to the end of your rope. Hopelessness sets in. You get depressed. There's no money in the bank. You don't bother your friends with this one. Then, as much as you hate to admit it, the plans and the directions that you thought you should be taking in life just aren't working out. And I'm not saying I wasn't a Christian up to, up to then, it, like I was some prodigal son or anything, but it's just that God wasn't in the forefront of my planning, and it hits you like a ton of bricks. He needs to be. And I tell you, I just started hollering out these desperate prayers. Lord, help me find a job. Help me to turn this situation around. 
And uh, I remember in desperation grabbing the phone book. That's back when we had phone books. And I was flipping through the pages, and I just jammed my finger down onto the page to see where it landed. And there in bold print was Lowe's Home Improvement. Wow. I tell you, I started calling all the Lowe's in the Tri-County area, uh, trying to get in, my foot in the door, and I got an opportunity for an interview the next day. You're not late to this one. And I met with Human Resource that morning, and then with um, the general manager uh, that evening, and by the, uh, the end of the night, I got a call. I had a job. The third day, I was employed. That, to me, without a shadow of a doubt, was a God thing. I prayed specifically, and God answered. And we've all been there. We all have our stories of desperations, of heartaches and hard times, broken relationships. We all can say those things because we all got on our hands and knees and prayed, and the Lord came to the rescue. It's what David meant when he said in our text in Psalms 138, verse 3, when I called, you answered. But instead of being specific, the Hebrew here is vague. David isn't thinking back over a particular incident. He's relating back over his entire life. And he's exuberant in the fact that he realizes how much God was involved in everything. And he's saying thank you in a very big way. Let's read that. Those verses of Scripture in Psalms 138. I will bless you, O Lord, with all of my heart. For the, before the gods, I will sing your praise. Now, Imagine, the promised land is still inundated with the Canaanite uh, people, and they are, uh, you know, they never really did wipe them completely out. So they're all over the promised land in little villages, and they all are steeped in idol worship. And this is a terrible influence on the people of Israel because those idols are so attractive. And you notice the Bible gives them little Gs? They are just like the Hollywood demigods today. Uh, oh, have you seen uh, Captain Marvel? And, and oh, the uh, Avengers uh, movie was so great, and Iron Man. And, but how about the Lord God Almighty? Do we get excited about Him? Do we have a story to share about Him? David does. I bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your forgiveness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's not a broken sentence. He is saying if the Lord said it, you can count on it. It's going to happen because God keeps his promises. When I called you, you answered me. You may be bold and stout-hearted. That word in the Hebrew means man with fiery, uh, courageous, and bravery. May all the kings of the earth praise you, O Lord, for they hear the words of your mouth. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretched out your hand against the anger of my foes. For your right hand, you saved me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. For, you, for your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hand. This last verse here is not a word, or they're not words of insecurity. David, because God never really leaves anything undone. David is simply expressing words because he has learned the lesson from the school of hard knocks, and the Lord was a teacher. 
He is the greatest king, the most powerful man in the land. And he is humbling himself, realizing when he looks back over his life how much God was involved. And he is saying, I still have a life and many years to live, and I know that I need you, Lord. And he knows that the Lord is not finished with him yet. And he's not finished with you either. Reflecting the past, foreseeing the future, it's all excited to David because the Lord plays such a big part in it. Now, our theme, I wanted to revolve around jubilance. I wanted it to be uh, a sense of joy uh, overlooking his past. And so I want us to have the sense of joy and the enthusiastic uh, nature when we think about our walk with the Lord. So I have to ask you, you know, what excites you? There was a preacher once that preached a sermon that kind of inspired this lady. She was in the back of the sanctuary, and she hollered out, Praise the Lord, and hallelujah, and uh, everybody was kind of shocked because they were all in suits, you know, and ties, and they just didn't do that kind of thing, and, and um, pretty soon the preacher hit on another note, and you could hear the lady uh, ring out again, another praise the Lord, and the deacons knew who it was that time, and they ran back, and they said, lady, you got to keep it down here because we just don't, we don't holler out here in the church here. And she consented, and they went back and sat down, and pretty soon the minister just nailed it, drove the point home, and she said, amen, brother, preach the word. And the deacons run back her and said, lady, what got into you? She says, I don't know, I don't know, I just got the spirit. And they said, well, you didn't get it here. <laughs> That's kind of corny. We've, we, we hear those. Uh, but if I could do a runoff on Charles's uh, compassionate sermon that he, he preached a few weeks ago. You know, when you stop and think about it, um, NFL spring training's right now. And, uh, you know, it's summer camp, and uh, doesn't the preseason season start next month in July, isn't it? And, and we get excited just thinking about football season all over again. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that 81,000 screaming fans can make the effort to expose themselves in sub-zero weather uh, to cheer on an uh, NFL game? And you know where I'm going with this. And yet, few in comparison struggle any given Sunday to worship our only real hope. And it's sad to think of it like that, but that's the truth. What excites you? For David, the writer of the psalm, he is older in years, and he's reflecting back over his life, realizing, you know, that all the accomplishments and the awards that he achieved in life, they were all because of the Lord. And he's realizing how much the Lord was involved in it. To most of us that consider achievements, it's an award that I achieved. It's an ambition that I desire. It's a satisfaction that I've created. And that's okay. That's the way the Lord wired us to be leaders and builders and accomplish those goals. David just realized he didn't do it alone. And he's delighted in how much God was involved. And when you stop and think of it, from the very first time that he was chosen from among his older seven older brothers in 1 Samuel 16, he was almost overlooked. Samuel would have been satisfied with any of his older brothers. They were all strong-looking lads. And I can hear God whisper in Samuel's ear, though, that he was not interested on the outside appearance of a man, but what's on the inside. And thus we have verse 7, the Lord looks at the heart. Are these all the sons that you have? I can hear Samuel ask Jesse. And Jesse would have sighed and said, well, no, I've got one more, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, get him. And you see, that was a God thing because he wasn't even considered until then. And how could you forget the battle with Goliath, that nine-foot, six-inch monster of a man that could have crushed the uh, 
Tyson uh, Mayweather uh, McGregor fighter of the day. He just could have squashed him. Would David have fared any better if it hadn't have been for the Lord? And who put the notion in David's head to grab those five stones out of that river bank instead of just one? Now, I think about it. Uh, you could think back over it also and say, well, that was an additional ambition of David's. You know, but then we see the providence of it all in 2 Samuel 21, 15, that there are four older brothers, four other giants that are recorded in Scripture. And again, it's all likelihood they were brothers of, of Goliath. And perhaps she would rather look at that ambition as an additional ambition of David's and picking up those four other stones. But the Lord didn't want him to be concerned with that at that time. And in those respects... That was a God thing also. It adds real meaning to the verse that Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love the Lord, who have been called according to his purpose. Yes, David was very thankful looking back over his life. And there's so much more to David's life and how God was involved in a very big way. But did it mean that his life was any easier? Here's the most powerful man had all the resources that God gave him. He was God's anointed, but was his life any easier? When David removed the head of that giant, and I can see this little guy, you know, the head of the giant, as heavy as it was, you can imagine the roar that was going on in the tribe of Israel. And I imagine King Saul was right in there cheering with him on that hillside. In 1 Samuel 18, 2, it says that King Saul was so delighted with David's performance that he found out who he was, and he brought him home and gave him the provisions of the palace. He kept him. He wouldn't let him go home. Jonathan, David's, or Saul's uh, younger uh, son, became the best friend of David. And, and what a wonderful friend he was. But David was there in that palace for some seven years, if you stop to think of it. Saul would tell David to go out on a mission, and David would go, and he would come back so successful. He'd send him out on another, come back so successful, send him out on another. It got to the point where the women, when he came home, the Bible tells us that the women from all from the towns around came out to meet Saul and David singing. Singing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And you can see, man, there's nothing more that hits on a guy's ego than for the cheerleaders to go from one team to the other, you know, and start rooting for the other person. It must have been a tremendous blow to Saul because his attitude goes from joy to bitterness to fits of rage to the point where he tried to take David's life more than once. And David had to be in that environment for seven years. When he runs away and he finally gets away from that, it's another eight years in exile before the Lord allows him to bring in the kingdoms all under one. And all of this, you just stop and think it's just the tip of the iceberg. Get in the scriptures. Uh, every time I open, before I open the Bible, I'm on hands and knees and I'm saying, God, teach me something new. Teach me something new. And he will. Uh, get in the scriptures. There's so much more to David's life that can uh, uh, benefit us. But when you look at this, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and you think from then on he had to manage the kingdom. Psalms 6 6 writes about how his, his bed was filled with tears, obviously from the stress of managing 
the kingdom of Israel. In Psalms 118.11, his mindset was that he had more enemies than friends. It says in verse 12, he says, they surround me on every side. They swarm around me like bees. It wasn't any easier for David to labor for the Lord back then, no more than it is easy for us to take a stand for Christ today. I remember back in the 70s, that's a long time ago, a lot of us weren't here then, but back in the 70s, it was the long hair and the bell bottoms. You remember in the striped bell bottoms, and my hair was, I could grab it, you know, and uh, David Carradine and Kung Fu was in at the time, and, and that's back when we sat around the living room and, and uh, contemplated our navel and philosophized, and we thought it was a really cool thing to do. My parents had enough. Uh, I flew out to meet with my brother. Uh, I should say they, they sent me to Canada to spend the summer with my brother to see what hard work and a college education could do because they were hoping he could rub off on me. And he was pretty impressive. John was a petrochemical cost engineer for um, Floor Daniel and Jacobs Engineering at times. And uh, he was head estimator. He was a math whiz. You could give him acreage and he could calculate what it would cost to build a refinery and understand uh, he, he said, Billy said, if you're within a few million dollars, you're doing a good job because to build a refinery, especially today, are five to fifteen billion dollars to do that. But I was so impressed with him. Uh, but I was more impressed when he would go off to work and leave me home alone to explore the countryside. I was his teenager. Up in Quebec, Canada, I'd run down to the uh, ferry and ferry it across the St. Lawrence River and uh, go to the castle, you know, the uh, Battle of Abraham in old Quebec, and there would be the old cobblestones and the architecture, and the artists were out there painting people, and you go up to the castle, and it was just awesome. And one day I had the big head of uh, uh, venturing out another place, and I went to one of the construction sites, and, you know, when they need something, they're building something, they'll just dig a hole in the ground, and that hole gets so deep that it's filled with water. And in Canada, you can imagine that beautiful, clear, crisp water. And I came over one of the caverns, I looked down, I noticed the construction boards were all crisscrossed down there, two by tens, two by twelves, and these are 20 foot long because they're form boards. And they had, one of, they had them fashioned that one of them stuck out over the pond, and it was like a diving board. And so, you know, I'm a teenager, and man, I tear off my shirt, and that was all I took off. Took, took off my shirt, and I got down there, and I was jumping on that board, and I dove in, and oh, that was so refreshing. I got, I came around and dove again, come out, came around, and, and I dove again, you know, and then I got up on that board, and I was just bouncing, this bouncing away, and pretty soon there was a helicopter that came over, and I mean, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I'm on a construction site. It's do not trespass. I'm in big trouble, and it got louder and louder, and the wind off of the blaze, boop, 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 boop. the dirt was hitting me, and the spray was beginning to stay and I looked down on my arms, and there were bees everywhere. And I jumped in the water, and I'm under the water, and I'm, they're stuck to me. They're still stinging me, and I'm picking them off. And I look up, and I see this cloud go back and forth. So I swim as far as I can, and I come up, and I'm splashing. And I go down, and I come up, and I'm splashing. Finally, I get to the other side, and I'm pulling all them stingers off, thanking God I don't have any allergies. But I looked over there, and I was thinking, where did those bees come from? And so I go across the cavern around the back side of it, and at the other end of that same board I was jumping on is this teardrop hornet's nest. Now, my wife said, you can't say hornets, Billy, because you said bees in the beginning, and you're going to confuse them. They both had stingers. 
And man, I felt them. And I thought, well, no wonder they're angry. I disturbed the hive. And so do you when you make a stand for Jesus. When you hold to those biblical values and take a stand and speak out against abortion, the millions and millions of babies that died. Canaanite villages have inundated our country. We are not winning in the Christ. They are winning us. And that's sad. And when we speak out that we upset the hive, when we have loved ones, that we try our very, very best to convince of uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 through 23, that God has designed a great life for marriage. Then the same-sex marriage, don't you upset the hive? And when you want to take a stand and you, you look at your peers and you make a decision that you're not going to cross that moral line, and young people know what I'm talking about, but you decide to have nothing to do with the fruits of darkness, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, and you got to face your peers and ridicule back in school. Aren't you jumping on the high? You most certainly are. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I know you're saying, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were looking back over David's trials in life and that he was happy. He was happy. He's not bitter about all of that. No. He's reflecting back on his life, and he's realizing that all the trials that he went through in hard times made him a stronger man. It made him love the Lord. It says in, um, when you think about what persecution does to us, and we all go through it in James chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. That's God's promise to those who love him. That's good for us. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it reminds us of the trials many of many kind uh, develop perseverance in our life. In Romans 5, 3, it speaks not only of the perseverance that develops in a believer's life under trial, but character and hope, and that's good for the world to see. And in regards to that, you know, it's not about us, is it? We're there as a witness for Christ. And in that sense, my friends, boy, I tell you, that's the greatest sermon you could ever preach is keeping the faith in spite of it all. Probably no one knew the virtues of this more than Susanna Wesley. She married a man who couldn't manage his money. He was in and out of debtor's prison. He was a preacher. I'm sorry, Aaron, if you got this on record. I'm sorry for the rest of preachers. I know. Couldn't I have thought of a better illustration? This is a wonderful story. Sharon Glasgow tells the story of the various trials that Susanna Wesley went through in life and how her husband disagreed on everything from politics to finances. And when he didn't get his way, he went off and he left her. They had 19 children. All except 10 died in infancy. Sam, her husband left her to raise those kids alone just too many times. One of the children was crippled, 
another couldn't talk until he was nearly six. Twice the home they lived in was burned to the ground, and you know they suspected a church member because they didn't like the way Sam was preaching. Somebody cut the cow's udders and it wouldn't give milk. They killed their dog. They burned their flax field. But she was determined in her faith. She was not going to let her um, drop her guard and be anything but the godly woman that God called her to be. You see, when Susanna was a young mother, she would promise the Lord that for every hour she spent in entertainment, she'd give it back to the Lord in studying the scriptures and in prayer. But where on earth do you find all the time when you have a house to take care of, garden to work and milk the cows, homeschool the children? There's really no time for entertainment. And so she gave the two hours to the Lord anyways. She struggled to find a secret place to spend alone with the Lord, so she told the kids when other mommy pulls the apron over her head. This is her private time. And the kids knew that. She was devoted. She was going to walk for the Lord. What it accomplished? Her son John and Charles were powerhouse for the glory of the Lord. John Wesley preached to nearly a million people in his day, and in one of his revivals, he preached to an estimated crowd of 32,000 people without a microphone. What did Charles Wesley do? wrote over 9,000 hymns, many of them that we sing today in our hymnals. And how can you look at that? No. How can you not look at that? All the trials that she went through and not praise the Lord. Was it tough and scary at times for Susanna? You bet it was. Were the giants in her life? Many of them. But her trials were like David. It taught her to persevere. It developed character, and it gave her hope. And that was passed on to her children and for the world to see. And the hope is yours if you call upon the name of the Lord. I was wondering if I'd have time. Do you know that word Lord? It's in all caps. It's a covenant keeper's name for God, Yahweh. 16th century, they had changed the name and abbreviated it and started saying Jehovah because they felt it was just too, they were, it's too revered of a name to say. And yet, so much in our social media today, it is taken in vain. It is not OMG. We should revere the name of the Lord. It's a third commandment to love the Lord, isn't it? To revere his name. The first commandment to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. That all things might work for the good of those who love the Lord. That's all I'm going to say about it. It should be end message. Probably one of the most misunderstood scriptures is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Because you stop and think of it. You know, when I, when I mention that, uh, and not to take the Lord's name in vain, or when I jump it on the hive, you think of the, the, the pressure the kids would be going through if they would hold to it. You've got to hold to it. We've got to make a change. But probably the most misunderstood scriptures is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul says, And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And we interpret that to mean that God won't give us any more than we can handle. Now, that sounds good, but it's not biblical. It would contradict what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, where he experienced hardship in the providence of Asia. Quote, it was a great pressure, Paul writes, and he goes on to say, far beyond our ability to endure. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. 
Well, you think about the trials that David went through, but he kept the faith. And the people like Susanna in life, the trials that they go through, but they keep the faith. It makes them a better person, makes them stronger in the Lord. And we have got to commit. We have got to commit. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to be steadfast in our faith. Make a difference in the world. I know it's not completely up to us. Where would we be without you? But I know if we love you with all the hearts, mind, and soul, you'll give us the strength to be the witness that we need to be. And I pray people will make that commitment today so that lives will be changed, hearts be touched. People will come forward and give their life to Christ. We can make a difference in this world that someday, like David and the Susannas of life, we can look back on our life and be glad in it. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.